Let's pray. Father, we come once more before your throne, and we ask of you the help that we need and the help that you promised to give us uh, when we ask. And so, Father, we come boldly through Christ, praying that you would meet us here as we study your word and look at this parable of our Lord. Lord, we ask that you would do wonderful things, that you would help us to see sin in our hearts, to root it out, to turn from it, and help us, Lord, all, maybe most of all, uh, to have a renewed commitment uh, to be singular in our focus on Christ and to live for Him faithfully, passionately, diligently while You lend us breath. And Father, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, where we are picking up with our study of the parable of the sower. At this point, we've made it from verse 1 all the way down through verse 17, and so this morning, we'll pick up with verse 18. And what we've seen so far in this study is just how immediately relevant this ancient parable is to us. It's reminded us that our responsibility as Christians is quite simple. We are called to be sowing the seed of the Word in season and out of season. It's reminded us that the, result, the results of our evangelistic endeavors at home, outside the doors of our home and at work, that the results of all of our faithful sowing of the Word of God, the results are not on us. If people fail to respond to our faithful proclamation of God's Word, it's not our fault. We are not to blame for the failed response to the Word of God. The response to the Word of God is determined not by the sower of the seed, but by the condition of the heart of the hearer. We've also seen the danger of hard-hearted unbelief as we've made our way through this passage and we've seen that it's possible for the human heart to be so proud, so stubborn, that it's like compacted soil that will never receive the message of Christ. Although they hear it over and over again, the message just bounces right off, and it will continue to do so, continue to bounce off until God sovereignly intervenes and breaks up the soil and transforms the heart of the proud hearer. And then last week we saw the danger of being a superficial hearer. Someone who hears the word of God and it goes in one ear and out the other and it takes no root in the heart. It's the danger really of hyper-emotionalism, the danger of mystical experiences, the danger of going from one emotional high to the next, of following Jesus just because He will make your life better. He'll make you happy, healthy, prosperous. It's using Jesus to get what you want. That's the superficiality of it all, the superficial hearer. And the danger in this type of superficiality is that when the trials of life come and squeeze the heart, What comes out is not good. 
In fact, the way that Jesus says it is the pressure of life is like the scorching heat of the sun on a newly sprouted plant. And the heat zaps the little sprout because it has no root. It withers away. In the same way, the pressure of life and the pressure of persecution comes on the superficial hearer and they shrivel up and they turn away from Christ. The pressure of life, the pressure of persecution, all of that reveals what was in their heart all along. They looked promising, but they were only hiding what was really in their heart. And we noted that this is what the pressures of life do. The pressures of life, God uses them to squeeze our hearts like a vice so that what's really inside comes out. And now when the true Christian sees some of the ugly things that come out of our hearts, our response is not to run away from Jesus, but to do what? Fly to Jesus. Because we know that that is so ugly. What I just saw is so dark and so ugly that there is only one being who can clean that. And that is the living God, Jesus Christ. So the Christian is compelled to fly to Jesus for forgiveness over and over again. But when the superficial hearer, when the pressure of life comes and things get uncomfortable, well, for them, they fly away from Christ to some other more comfortable pathway, some other easier trail to heaven, which we know they'll never find. To leave Christ is to cut yourself off from all hope. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And then finally, well, this morning we come to the third soil in Jesus' parable, which we're going to call the distracted hearer. So we've seen the hard-hearted hearer, the superficial hearer, and this morning we're going to look at the distracted hearer. This is the kind of person who hears the Word of God and like the superficial hearer, starts off well. They look promising and you think, wow, they're, they're really with it. But in just a matter of time, they prove that their first love, their primary love, is actually not Jesus, but is really for the things of the world. They love the world more than they love Jesus. And so, because of their love for the world, they're pulled around by all the distractions of the world, and eventually, these distractions grow to be so big in their life that it eventually crowds out any love to God, and they are choked out by the weeds of worldliness. And of course, this is a subtle danger for all of us. It's a danger because we live in an age of endless distraction, do we not? We live in an age of multitasking, split screens. In fact, probably the biggest distraction in your life is in your pocket cell phone. It's full. I mean, the world is open to you the world of distractions. If we're not careful, the inundation of all these distractions will pull us away and these actually will become weeds that sprout up in our heart and they will eventually strangle out the influence of the Word of God. This is a great warning for all of us this morning. We need to be on guard. And so, because of the relevancy of this 
particular soil. I want us to spend the morning looking carefully at it together uh, because I want you to certainly heed this vital warning. All right? So why don't you stand with me and we'll read Mark chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 14 and we'll read down to verse 20. The sower, says Jesus, sows the word. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, Immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. You may be seated. So we're on soil number three. We first meet the third soil in verse 7 of chapter 4. Jesus says, as the sower sows his seed, some of it, verse 7, fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it and it yielded no crop of course this is very similar to the second soil in that when the sower looked out it looked like good cultivated fertile soil in fact it was very fertile Uh, it had all the necessary nutrients for the seed to flourish But the problem with this soil was that it was also nourishing the the sower seed. It was nourishing the sower seed, but at the same time, it was nourishing the seed of thorns. That was the issue. So the two plants then pull all the nutrients from this soil. They grow side by side for a little while until finally the thorns outpace the good seed and choke it out altogether so that it doesn't produce any fruit. Now in verse 18 and 19, Jesus gives the explanation for this illustration. He says, verse 18, And, others, and the others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns, and these are the ones who have heard the word. But... Listen carefully. The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Three things there. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Deadly distractions that pull the hearer away from the main thing. Distractions that start out small. No big deal. Look, it's just a little sprout. It's 
There's 50 of them. It's not a big deal. They're small. Look at them. They're small. It's not going to hurt anything. But faster than the hearer ever could have anticipated, these distractions grow up into massive weeds that choke the Word of God out of their heart. So, what I want to do with you, because this is such an urgent warning, I just want to look at these three distractions with you in the next few minutes. So that you can see them and you can let the Word of God warn you about the danger of these specific distractions in your life, Christian. Now, of course, this is a great explanation for our evangelism. We sow the seed of the Word, someone starts off, they look like they're doing great, they turn from their past lifestyle of sin, and then three weeks later, they're back engaged in that same lifestyle. Why why did they do that? Well, because they're a distracted hearer, or a divided hearer. They're a third soil kind of person. However, this illustration comes to Christians as a very grave, serious warning. So I want to just walk through that with you this morning so that you can see it and know, or really identify the enemy in your own heart. All right, we'll just take them one by one. The first distraction, Jesus identifies as the worries or cares of the world. You see that in verse 19. It's an interesting little phrase, worries of the world. And the word worry here is from the the Greek word merimna, which comes into English as worry, care, or anxiety. Is that a problem for you at all? (laughs) Worry, care, or anxiety. It's a ubiquitous problem uh, in our culture, in our time. It's ubiquitous uh, for all humanity. It has the original idea of being pulled in two different directions or being divided. And really, it's the the division of the mind is the idea. A mind that's focused on the possible dangers or misfortune that might come my way. It's a focus on what might be rather than what actually is. And what happens when you worry is that your mind is pulled away from the promises of God and the responsibilities that God has given you to accomplish today. And it's focused on the possible dangers or difficulties that might come your way. So really it's a divide between the present and the future. It's a divide between the promise of God in the right now and you trying to solve some problem that you think might come tomorrow. But the problem with that sort of division, mental division, is that you only know the present. You only know the present. God hasn't given you the capacity to know the future. You don't have that equipment. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what the next minute holds. God has not fashioned humans with the ability and the capacity to see what might be tomorrow. And we are then time-bound people. That's how God has made us, to be time-bound. Of course, we can think about what might be in a healthy way, but that healthy way of thinking about the future quickly descends into worry and sinful care. And it will quickly pull you off of the promises of God. 
So God has not given us the mental equipment to live in tomorrow. He's given us what we need today. We are designed by God for moment-by-moment living. That is God's design. And we have been given the mental and spiritual capacity to live that way. Now what happens when you try to live out of the bounds of your spiritual and mental capacity? Life is not wonderful, is it? You can have physiological problems. You, you sort of have a crisis of resources. You're trying to solve problems that God's not given you the help, the ability to solve. When you try to live that way, what you're really trying to do is you're, you're trying to play God's part and do His job for Him. You look into the future and you try to solve problems that don't exist. And you become so focused and overwhelmed by what might be that you are unfaithful with what actually is. It leads to all sorts of problems. Jesus told us explicitly in Matthew 6.25 that we are not to live this way. You are not to worry about the future. You are not to be anxious about the future. You are to trust that into God's hands. We are, Jesus says, not to be worried about our lives. Philippians 4.6, the Apostle Paul tells us to be anxious, worried for nothing. That's a command. Be anxious, be worried for nothing. Don't worry. That's God's command to you. Philippians 4.6, Matthew 6.25. We are to focus, rather than worry, we're to focus our attention on being faithful to God today. If you spent maybe half of your time uh, on what God wanted you to do in this moment, rather than worrying about what might be, you would be a more faithful Christian. And God has made it to where you are designed to entrust the future into His hands, and you are designed to get your hands to work in the present. And to not do that is sinful because it goes directly against God's design. All right, that's worry. That's care. Sinful care. Now look back at verse 19 in Mark 4. Jesus mentions a very specific type of worry here. He calls it the worries or the cares of the world. It's a type of worry or concern that is identical to the types of worries and concerns of people in the world. Jesus, of course, addresses this issue in Matthew 6. Why don't you flip over there with me? We read it at the beginning of the service, but I want you to see a few things in Matthew chapter 6. Because what Jesus does here is he identifies for us in Matthew 6, 25 to 30, what the worries of the world look like. What does he mean by worries of the world? He starts in verse 25. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried, marimna, or anxious, about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. And then notice his question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So those are the worries of the world. It's a preoccupation with your physical life, with food, with drink, and with clothing. 
or really anything connected to the physical body. In modern parlance, we might say diet, exercise, and fashion. The worries of the world are a preoccupation with these types of things. And Jesus goes on. Look at verse 26, Matthew 6. He says, look at the birds of the air. That they do not they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That's the forgotten dimension when you're worrying. Your heavenly Father. Right? If worry is a divided mind, you're divided. You're, you're thinking about the problem, and what are you not thinking about? Your Father. Your heavenly Father. He feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? If he takes care of the birds, you think he's going to take care of you? Verse 27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? I love that verse. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? You don't have the capacity to do that. This is our problem. We start trying to operate outside of our God-given capacities. We don't have the capacities to live tomorrow. We only have the capacity to live today. And we don't have the capacity to extend our life. Life and death, Psalm 139.16, for you have been written down in a book. And it's fixed. And no matter how much you diet, no matter how much you exercise, you can't change that decree. Now, some of you are saying, praise God, I don't have to exercise anymore. (laughs) That's not the point. But I can tell you, You can't exercise your way out of mortality. God has the day planned for you. And it's written in His book. And it's fixed. So you should worry far less about diet and exercise and worry far more about being faithful to God today. Now I will say, you can diet and exercise and be faithful to God at the same time, okay? We can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think we can do it. But the point here is Jesus says, you can't even add a single hour to your life. Why are you worried about it? You can't do that. And then he goes on in verse 28. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed, clothed himself like one of these. This is fashion. I mean, Solomon was the king. He would have been dressed... Uh, the most fashionably, the trendsetter. And Jesus says, you know, the lilies of the field, they don't even do anything. And God clothes them in a more fashionable way than Solomon ever was. Verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, here's the theological reality. Will He not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Of course He will, but here's the problem. You're not thinking about the theological reality that God is your father and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he takes care of the lilies and he takes care of every moving thing, every dynamic of creation is in his hands. When you're worrying, your mind is divided. You're pulled away from that theological reality. You want help for that? Fix your eyes on your heavenly father. Verse 31. This is why the exhortation comes. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Now notice verse 32. 
why we should not worry about these things. Of course, we've said because our Heavenly Father knows we need them, but verse 32 says, for or because the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Don't do that, because this is what the Gentiles do. The world does that. The world worries about all these things. Don't, don't do that. Because when you do that, you're no different than them. There's no difference between you if you're worried about the same things. And then he says, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. The Christian differentiates himself from what the world is concerned with and what the world worries about. Why? Because we live with a theological reality that we have a Father who has said, Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell all your possessions. Get rid of it. And store up your treasure in heaven. And what he's saying there is unhinge yourself from all of these worries of the world and live for me. That's exactly what he says actually in verse 33. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The Father says to you, Seek my kingdom, and I will take care of the rest. Seek my kingdom, he says to you, and I'll take care of the rest. You have been unburdened from having to worry about the things the world worries about. Food, clothing, fashion, diet, exercise. You're unburdened from having to be consumed with that. I'm going to unburden you from that, says the Father, so that you can focus all of your effort have a singular focus on accomplishing my mission in the world. I'll take care of all of it. You just seek my kingdom. But the distracted hearer misses all of that. They miss it. They divide their mind on multiple things. They don't care to set the Lord before them. They don't focus their effort, their energy on the kingdom. They, they divide it. I'll do a little bit here, but I also want some of these other things in my life. And so eventually, those other things that are small pull him away, or rather choke him out. They crowd out his devotion to God and pull him away from seeking the kingdom of God. And friends, this is a constant danger for us. You and I are always at risk of being diverted from this most important task. You remember the story of Mary and Martha from Luke 10? Some of you are already thinking about them, I think. The same thing happened to Martha. Jesus, you'll remember, came to visit these two dear sisters. And when he arrived, Mary came up to Jesus and sat down at his feet in order to listen to the word. What was her priority? The word. The word was her priority. But Martha, the text says, was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? She's not thinking about Matthew 6, is she? She's lost sight of theological reality. Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? 
Then tell her to help me. If you do, do this. Who's sovereign here? Who's operating outside of their capacities? She definitely is. Martha is operating outside the bounds of her limitations. She's trying to do God's part, God's job for him. And so the Lord answered her and says, Martha, Martha, listen very closely to this. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Your heart is full of the weeds of distraction, Martha. You're worried and bothered about so many things. And at this point, Martha sort of let them grow. They grow quick, don't they? I mean, you know this. All of a sudden, you have one thought. You're in the kitchen. They're in there playing, doing something. You know, Mary's sitting down at the feet of Jesus. You're in the kitchen doing all the hard work. And you're thinking, I'm so glad to serve Jesus. I'm so glad to serve Mary. Life is so wonderful. The Lord is here with me. You're washing the dishes, and all of a sudden you think, man, this is taking a long time. I wonder what they're talking about in there. And that weed starts, you know, sprouting up. Man, it would be really nice if I got a little help in here. What are they doing in there? What is happening? I guess I'm going to slave away while they have all their fun over there, and I'll just work in here in the kitchen. It happens quick. And that weed grows up, just like these weeds in the Middle East that grow up to over six feet tall. These weeds grow quick. And that is what happened with Martha. Her thinking was divided. and She was thinking about herself and not about the kingdom of God. She had been pulled away from thinking about the main thing she was worried and bothered about so much. And that same description could be applied to us so often, couldn't it? Worried and bothered about so many things. And if we don't heed Jesus here and get, the, get our eyes rather back on the one thing needful, which is Him and His Word, then the weeds of worry will suffocate us and, and crowd out our devotion to Him. I hope that makes sense. So let me, let me ask you a question, a series of questions. Have you been swept up in the worries and concerns of this world? You should ask yourself that. Are you following the world's agenda and pursuing the things thereafter? Are you being pulled away from a narrow, laser focus on the kingdom of God and His righteousness by all the earthbound cares and worries of your life? Have you, are you worried and bothered by so many things this morning? Have you forgotten the one thing needful? You should ask yourself those questions. And if your answer to that, to any of those, is yes, then today is the day to repent and renew your focus on the one thing that is necessary. Pray that God would take your divided mind that's partitioned out on the cares and worries of the world and then you're trying to hang on to this book a little bit too pray god unite my heart to fear your name and to live for you alone and restore in me the joy of my salvation and give me a singular devotion and loyalty to jesus christ
So that's distraction number one, the worries of the world. But there's a second distraction that we see in verse 19, and it's the deceitfulness of riches. The word riches here refers to an abundance of earthly goods. We call that wealth. And this wealth, Jesus says, has a special deceitful nature about it. It's another interesting word, deceit. It's the same concept that we see with Satan in the Garden of Eden. Deceiving Eve, pulling her away, enticing her, seducing her into breaking the commandment of God. The word deceit refers to a trick or a ruse that causes someone to have wrong views about what is true. That's deceit. I want you to think that what I'm telling you is true, but I'm really trying to get you to believe a lie. So I'm tricking you. I'm deceiving you to believe that something is true when it's really a lie. That's what a deception is. And Jesus said that the abundance of possessions, wealth, riches, is like that. It's very deceitful. It has remarkable power to delude, and as the Puritans would say, to bewitch someone into thinking about the world in a way that is contrary to reality. So, how does that work? How do riches deceive? I mean, we could probably just do a poll and get all sorts of answers. But I put together four ways that riches deceive from Scripture. Before I give you those, though, I want to just make one caveat here. Wealth and possessions and riches are not evil. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, Deuteronomy 8.18 says it's the Lord who gives people power to make wealth. Proverbs 10.22 says that it is the blessing of the Lord that makes one rich. And there are many other places we could go to see that the Lord doesn't um, decry wealth or riches. He actually made the patriarchs wealthy. That's what he did. So the issue is not that riches are evil. The issue that Jesus is warning about here is that riches, although they are good, they have a, a particular deceiving, seductive quality about them. And if you're not on guard against wealth, it will seduce you into thinking wrongly about the world and cause you to believe lies. Let me tell you some of those, four of those things. Number one, riches can deceive you by giving you a false sense of security. Psalm 52, verse 7. Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. Proverbs 18.10. Great verse. Verse 10. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. But in contrast, verse 11. Next verse. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a wall in his own imagination. The righteous runs into the name of Yahweh and is safe. The rich man because he's deceived into thinking that he has security in his wealth, he's conditioned himself to run to his wealth for his security. His wealth, the text says, is like a high wall, but it's only in his own imagination. And when real trouble comes to him, things that money can't fix, like a terminal illness, 
the flimsiness of wealth proves itself. It proves to be insufficient for him. But at that point, it's too late. So wealth can deceive you into thinking you're secure when you're not. And it can deceive you into taking refuge in it rather than fleeing like the righteous to the name of Yahweh. Number two, riches can deceive you by shifting your focus off the kingdom of God. Maybe the best example of this is the parable of the rich man in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 to 21. Let me read that for you. And Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And notice who he's thinking about. What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Verse 18, Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. You see that? It's all about him. All about him. And his focus has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, nothing to do with transcendent realities, and everything to do with earthbound pleasures. And so, verse 20, God said to him, You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now what will become of what you have prepared? You fool. Jesus then said in verse 21, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He said there's a delusion there of security. He thought he was secure. That's certainly true. But there was also this fatal distraction. He was rich on earth, and so he focused on building larger barns and taking ease and comfort, but he was not rich towards God. And that's the emphasis of the whole parable, verse 21, that riches pull you away from storing up heavenly treasure and deceive you into storing up treasure on earth. That's the deceitful factor. It's seductive. It pulls you and says, well, look, look, just build bigger barns. Just build, build bigger barns for yourself. You can say, okay, once we get those barns set, then we can take our rest. All right, but let's get the barns built. And the Lord says, you fool. Words that you never want to hear from the Lord. Number three, riches can deceive you by erecting within your heart a rival loyalty to Christ. We see this with the rich young ruler, don't we? You'll remember him, a very wealthy man who came up to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after a brief interchange, Jesus understood that the issue with this man's heart was really his attachment to wealth. Jesus knows that before this man can truly follow him, he has to be willing to let it all go. And so in Luke 18, verse 22, Jesus said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. That was all he lacked. Just sell it all, and then take the benefits from it, and give it to other people. So who's the rich man thinking about? He's only thinking about himself. There's a common denominator in all of this. 
He's thinking about himself, and Jesus knows that. If anyone come after me, he must deny himself. So he's getting right to the heart of the rich young ruler, and he says to him, you've got to sell all of it, and then you can follow me. In other words, you've got to die to yourself, and then you can follow me. And then in verse 23, one of the saddest verses in all the New Testament, Luke 18, 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Mark adds that he went away sorrowful. What was going on there? Well, it was an issue of loyalty. It was a, it was a battle of loyalties. You're going to be loyal to me, says Jesus. You've got to get rid of this other loyalty. You're going to follow me. You've got to let it go and bow the knee to me. You can't bow the knee to wealth and me at the same time. That's, of course, Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Mammon or wealth. You can't do it. This is the deceitfulness of wealth as it erects within you a loyalty. Right? You got it, and now you've got to sustain it. You've got to focus on it. You've got to keep it up. And it's possible to bow the knee to Jesus and to be faithful with your wealth and abundance. But it's hard. This is why Jesus said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for the, than for the rich man to go to heaven. Because there's so much deceit tied to it. And you've got to be diligent and vigilant to fight against it. So you only have one master. You can only have one master. And wealth will seduce you into bowing at its feet. So beware, Christian. Now there's a fourth deceit here about riches. Number four, riches can deceive you by gradually consuming your life. John D. Rockefeller, you know the name, the founder of the Standard Oil Company. He's the first billionaire in the USA, and at one point the richest man on earth, was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he calmly replied, just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just, just a little bit more. That's the, the, the deception of wealth. I just need a little bit more, and, and then I'll be happy. I'll have, you know, accomplished my goal. Solomon says this in Proverbs 23. Just listen very carefully to this. It's such a wise counsel. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Stop thinking about it. Why? Well, because you can only be thinking about one thing at a time. If you divide your mind on wealth, you're not thinking about the Lord. Cease consideration of it. Verse, 20, verse 5. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. And the delusion is that you can catch it. That's the delusion. You're the exception. Right? You can go catch the eagle. And Solomon says, don't even look at the thing. Don't even look at it. He's the wealthiest man to ever live. So those are four aspects of the deceitfulness of wealth. It can deceive you by creating a false sense of security. It can distract you from the one thing needful, the main thing. 
It can deceive you by erecting a rival loyalty to Christ in your heart. And it can deceive you by enticing you to waste your whole life to gain it. So it shouldn't surprise us when the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some... Here's my concern for you. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. That's the concern. So you have to know what God says about the deception of it all. Now, of course, the distracted hearer is not aware of any of that. Not aware of any of it at all. They naively think that they can have Jesus and pursue the eagle at the same time. They think they can have Jesus and have wealth at the same time, but tragically, the weeds of wealth grow up almost instantaneously and choke out the word from this distracted here. It's an issue of naivete. The word is clear about wealth and the deceitfulness of it. But if you don't exercise yourself to know what God says about it, then you live simply. You live naively. And if you get sucked up and pulled into that, it's not because you didn't know any better. God has spoken. It's because you didn't heed the warning of our Lord. Okay, so there there are then the worries of the world that divide the heart and pull it away from God. Then there are the deceitfulness of riches that we've seen. Both of these grow up in our heart faster than you could ever imagine. And they have an incredible potential to crowd out the love of God and the love of His Word from our hearts. There's a third distraction in verse 19 that we want to look at really quick. And it's this. It's the distraction of the pleasures of life. Verse 19 calls it the desires for other things, which is very general. It's the word epithemia, which is used to describe a longing or a craving for something good or bad. It's good or bad. It's a desire in good contexts, and it's lust in negative contexts. But here, it's a desire for other things. They're neither good nor bad. It's just other things. It's just desires. But in Luke's account of this parable, he uses the phrase, pleasures of this life. The pleasures of this life. That's a weed that shoots up. The pleasures of this life. And the of this life part refers to the earthbound pleasures of the world. These are pleasures that are tied to any horizontal dynamic of life. Food, sex, leisure, comfort, entertainment. Pick your pleasure. That's permissible. Now we want to be clear that these pleasures in and of themselves are not sinful because God has created them. Solomon actually says in Ecclesiastes 6.3, if you're not enjoying the world that God has made and the pleasures of food and drink appropriately and the world in which God has made. If you're not enjoying that, he says it would be better for you to never have been born. That's Ecclesiastes 6.3. Powerful statement. God created the world to be enjoyed is the point. In fact, God even sets out the enjoyment of the world and of life 
as an enticement and a reward for obedience to him. It's 1 Peter 3.10. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. You want to love life? You want to enjoy the world God's made? Love life and see good days? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. God says, you want to enjoy the world? Pursue the things that I tell you to. So I just want to make the point that enjoyment of life is not the issue. The issue here with these pleasures that sort of pull this, this hearer away is not the issue of pleasure in itself. It's the issue of uncontrolled and unregulated desire for pleasure. It's, it's pleasure unbounded from the Word of God. Unregulated from the Word of God. And any pleasure besides the Word of God, besides Christ, besides God, any pleasure outside of that has the capacity to grow up and crowd out the one true pleasure that is God in your heart. This is why I think Mark says it here, and the Lord says, the desires for other things. What other things? Anything other than the Word of God. Anything other than God. Anything other than God has the capacity to be a weed in your life. Even good things? Yes. Those are the most deadly, the most dangerous, the most alluring, and the most deceitful. Can I love my wife too much? Yes. If you love her more than God. Can I love my children too much? Yes. If you love them more than you love the Lord. If you're trying to get your pleasure and your satisfaction from them, rather, listen carefully, than going through them to God, the one who gave you them. And that's how gifts work. We go through the gift of a wife, through the gift of a child, of a family, back to God, and we praise Him and worship Him for the gift. But if you exalt the gift above the giver, that is a weed that will quickly choke out and strangle your love to God. And you will pay for that. The English pastor J.C. Ryle captured this point very well. All right, So I'm going to read a long quote here. He says, The things of this life form one of the greatest dangers which beset the Christian's path. The money, the pleasures, the daily business of the world are so many traps to catch our souls. Thousands of things which in themselves are innocent become, when followed to excess, little better than soul poisons and helps to hell. Open sin is not the only thing that ruins a soul. In the midst of our families, in the pursuit of our lawful callings, we have need to be on guard. Except we watch and pray, these temporal things, earthbound pleasures, may rob us of heaven and smother out every sermon we hear. You see the point? The reality, as Calvin put it, is that the seeds of uh, these thorn seeds are in every one of our hearts. The, the capacity for these pleasures to grow up in our own heart are there. Uh, fallen hearts house all of this seed that can just sprout up so quickly and in a moment's time. And Calvin put it this way. He said, There is not one of us whose heart is not filled with a vast quantity and 
as I may say, a thick forest of thorns. Now his point there is just to say that you have within your heart the capacity to idolize anything. He further said the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. You have within you the capacity to love every little earthbound pleasure more than you love God. And that, my friend, is the real danger. It's unchecked, ungoverned pleasures that run wild in your hearts, that are not subdued and subjugated to Christ's throne. Those are the danger. And so the Christian then, he will take Martha. The weed shoots up. Oh, she messed up big. The Lord rebukes her. She's confronted by the Word of God. So what does she do? She uproots that weed. Right? She cuts it down. And the Christian is constantly having to do that. We're constantly weeding the soil of our hearts. Because if we're not, these weeds will fill our hearts and strangle out the Word of God. So, I mean, I hope you see how relevant this little illustration is. It's ancient, but it's timeless because it's true, and it's two human beings like you and I who have not changed. So, my prayer is that the Lord would help each one of us to have our eyes open for the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and for these unhinged desires that sort of float around. My prayer is that we would be a people who are weeding out the soil of our hearts incessantly. And we're going to war with these things. So may the Lord help us to do that so we don't fall into the trap of the distracted hearer. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You have not only saved us, but You have given us such wisdom in Your Word that is a warning to us and is full of needful warnings and corrections where we are prone to go astray. We're prone to entertain lesser joys that would usurp our love to You. We thank You that You have given us these words that call us to diligently uh, till and to cultivate and to weed our own hearts and to be on guard against these distractions. Lord, we ask that you would help us to fight against these things and be the kind of people who bear much fruit. And we know ultimately, Lord, that our fruitfulness is only because of you. There's nothing we could do to gain it, but it is all about you and from you and to you and to you is given the glory now and forever and ever. Amen.